Yeah, and it seems like the objective at this point is regime change, I think. Putin seems to want a friendly neighboring regime to its west, and it doesn't seem like it will stop until it gets to, to Kiev at least. The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. Now this oft-quoted passage from Antonio Gramsci's prison notebooks sounds eerily apt to describe Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine over the past week and its shock effect on the so-called rules-based international order. We at Uncommon Decency began our journey into podcasting a little over a year ago with an episode titled Europe's Paradise Lost. In it, our esteemed friend Ben Haddad warned us that Europe had been enjoying a geopolitical bliss since the end of the Cold War that could not be indefinitely sustained. The European Union, he argued, should urgently graduate from America's security patronage and become a geopolitical actor in its own right. Ben's argument has aged, well, spectacularly well. In response to a scale of violence unseen on the European continent since World War II, the EU's member states have beefed up their sanctions on Russia up to what they hope will be a choke point, pledging to end their dependence on Russian gas and raise their defense spending up to the 2% of GDP required by NATO. In this latest bonus episode with a regular guest, Julian Graham, we ask, in what ways is the war over Ukraine reshaping the contours of the international order? As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts and send us your comments or questions on Twitter at UndecencyPod or over email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash UndecencyPod. Now, enjoy the show. So we're recording on the morning of March 1st, morning Washington DC time, afternoon European time. Uh, the current state of play militarily in Ukraine, um, there is a Russian military convoy advancing towards Kiev. We don't know at what time or on which day of the war it will arrive there and continue the assault on the capital city of Ukraine. Uh, Belarusian troops have entered northern Ukraine, according to Ukrainian authorities, um, and missile attacks continue around Kharkiv, including one uh, attack which uh, reported to have killed 70 Ukrainian soldiers um, on Sunday, as well as other attacks that have killed civilians in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Um, that is the general overview of the state of play. But as it stands, uh, Ukrainian forces have still successfully repulsed Russian attacks in Kharkiv and in Kiev. Um, Picture to the south, uh, Russian forces are making more steady advances, but that's where we are at the time of recording, of course, war being a very fluid um, event in global affairs. Um, so the picture may well change by the time this goes out, but that's where we are at the moment. Yeah, and it seems like the objective at this point is regime change, I think. it's it's It seems like... Well, we, we, we had this episode only two weeks ago where we were kind of looking at different scenarios. I think regime change, we were thinking maybe more along the lines of a coup. Um, but regime change definitely seems to be like the preferred outcome. Putin seems to want a friendly neighboring regime to its west. 
and it doesn't seem like it will stop until it gets to to Kiev at least. And especially with the rallying figure that Zelensky has become, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no possibility of uh, Putin and Zelensky coexisting alongside one another, or at least from a Russian perspective, there's no possibility yeah. of that happening. But there's a dual front here. There's a military front, but there's also a diplomatic front. Um, negotiations have been um, ongoing between Russia and, and Ukraine over the past few few days. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know one of the, one of the um, difficulties and kind of tracking the progress of these uh, diplomatic negotiations that have been unfolding, I think, in uh, Minsk, the capital of Belarus, over the last couple of days. In fact, the, the uh, latest kind of wire that I was reading about from the New York Times said that the uh, delegations returned to their respective capitals, Kiev and Moscow, with, with no clear uh, progress made on on you know resolving the, the the situation. But one of the difficulties in in tracking that progress is that Russia is so on 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 one hand Russia will demand all the things that we already know obviously that no that NATO uh, retreats from the the former so from the for, former um, uh, 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 Soviet sphere of influence and that uh, Ukraine becomes a neutral uh, so that Ukraine essentially gives up the um, prospect of ever joining NATO, but that is also, you know, with that comes um, another uh, another set of demands, which uh, you know, Russia says we want to denazify Ukraine. We want to replace yeah. this nationalist, this Ukrainian nationalistic government with one that is going to be more pliable to Russian interest in the, in the image of, let's say, Belarus, for instance. But, but I think that's going to be a, a really huge bone of contention in these negotiations is that Russia is, as you as you've just described, is is brazenly seeking regime change in a neighboring country that is a sovereign democracy. Yeah. So I think it, it, it strikes me that Putin has started believing his own propaganda, mm. I think, to some extent, because we talked a lot um, very early on about he wrote this very long essay about how Ukraine and Russia were you know, brotherly countries that had a common history and they were you know, basically separated by the anomaly of uh, anomalies of history. Yeah. Um, but the, the Nazi stuff. It is true you've got some, you know, Nazi regiments or Nazi-looking regiments fighting in the Ukraine army. But it's also the case that you've got very similar kind of battalions fighting with Russia. Absolutely. Uh, it's also the case you've got, um, I think it's Alexander Dugin, he's one of uh, Putin's advisors, um, who is a national Bolshevik or whatever he, he declares himself to be, with kind of weird kind of pan-European symbolism and the rest of it. Um, I don't know. It, it seems to me that he started to believe his own propaganda. Mm. And for example, take Kharkiv. Kharkiv was supposed to be in the Russian sphere of influence within Ukraine. And one of the cities people thought would probably join Russia in case of a kind of insurrection from the pro-Russian uh, insurrectionists in the, in the East. But Kharkiv is holding. Kharkiv, it might fall. It probably will fall at some point, but it is, it is holding. Mm. Um, so could this be a case of kind of hubris? Mm. Um, where all the propaganda about how the Ukraine army being weak and how the West being decadent and the rest of it actually Putin started believing in it. It's 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 strange because I think a lot of us, me including, for a long time didn't believe an invasion was possible because we thought Putin would be kind of much more opportunistic, sensing an opportunity if there was one, he wouldn't commit himself into very costly affairs. People were pointing out that his interventions in the Middle East, especially in Syria, were actually quite cheap. Um, and he got a lot of political capital with very limited military and, and financial input. 
Um, so, you know, all those articles are, are, the past few weeks that say that that wouldn't happen were making this kind of very rational outcome space, saying there's no positive outcome for Putin out of this. But maybe maybe there's a kind of base, very basic hubris that kind of blurred this very realistic, rational approach to, to geopolitics. And I think it also goes back to that essay that he published yeah. last year on Kiev and Rus and the joint history of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. And that if you truly believe that, which you have to assume he does, given how long it is and how much detail is in it, then the assumption of invasion would not just have been a rapid collapse of the Ukrainian military, but also a sense of welcoming from Ukrainian peoples, or as he would yeah. see them, as fellow Russians. And this welcoming of being rejoined with the overarching, the greater Russia. Um, but that just hasn't happened. And the Ukrainian civil defense, in addition to the military defense, has very much bogged down, uh, well, actually, I won't say bogged down, but has slowed the Russian advance. And I think that assumption that people would just sort of fold over and collapse, fearing the overwhelming force that the Russians would apply, um, because that hasn't happened, the Russians now have to recalculate and adjust their military strategy. Yep. Um, I... I, I, I want to be careful while using the power now with with, um, with uh, Iraq, the war in Iraq. But I was reading this tremendous article the other day by um, uh, this blog calling the Scholar Stage. It's called the article is called called Pausing at the Precipice, and essentially saying that we see politics mainly as driven by kind of realistic national actor focused models and we think these things are not going to happen um and actually a lot of it is actually driven by by by, by values it's actually a lot of it is driven by doing what feels right in the right circumstance um and what putin has been saying about ukraine and and russia being brotherly countries this is nothing new um jorge will remember this but in, in our conversation with uh, Michael Kimmage and Vlad Davidson. We talked about this very, or very famous author, um, Solzhenitsyn, who wrote this book in 1990, yeah. which was called Rebuilding Russia, in which he said, you know, we, the, the empire is lost. We need to abandon the Soviet Empire. However, Ukraine is different. Mm. Ukraine is, is, is something we, we've got a very strong tie with, um, and we should really build to create this kind of long-term partnership with, with the Ukraine. So the reason I'm bringing this up is, because I don't think Putin is in the minority in arguing this. I think I think he's a lot of Russians will agree with Putin that the two countries need to be very close to, to together, if not unified. The question is, and I think that's the leap I, many Russians probably didn't expect, is does that mean invasion? Does that mean body bags? Does that mean, apparently the casualties are, are, are pretty pretty sizable. We're talking about you know, thousands of people already. Um, and I think a lot of Russians probably did not expect that leap, and that's where the hubris might have played in. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Russian public opinion was prepared, and even a propaganda war within within Russia. A lot of kind of big YouTubers and influencers, you know, accounts with millions of followers, have been saying no to war. The famous tennis player, uh, which I forget because I don't follow tennis enough, um, singing "No to War" on a camera after winning. Um, uh, and on the other side, you got Putin. Putin's propaganda is quite quite plain it's him with two gorillas in the uniforms in a kind of unidentified room 
somewhere in a bunker, kind of moving troops around on a map. Um, contrast this with a kind of very emotional and powerful um, propaganda coming from from the Ukrainian side. Well, propaganda might be a bit, a bit mean, but you know the messaging. Um, it's 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 night and day. It's night and day. And I think I think at some point the Russian population is also seeing that kind of stuff. It's basically the same language, and and most most Ukrainians speak Russian. Um, yeah. Yeah, in terms of the the color contrast, I mean, the I think one example that really stood out to me was it's from Benfica Football Club. Um, their captain is also the Ukrainian football team captain, and when mm-hmm. he took the field on I want to say Sunday, um, the entire stadium took to their feet and were waving Ukrainian flags, and that yep. sort of emotional response um, has really fed not just some of uh, President Zelensky's appeals to European leaders, but also the humanitarian efforts. Um, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C. Uh, one of our most famous residents and chefs, Jose Andres, um, has flown over to refugee camps on the northwestern part of the country uh, to supply food for people escaping the conflict. And the mass donations that are coming in around the world, we're seeing celebrities promising to match donations to different humanitarian organizations. The globalization of that appeal for the Ukrainian people and for Ukraine is something that Putin can't match because, and I think in a large sense, the US and countries in Europe have done so much work to outline how Putin is trying to take Russia to war against Ukraine, um, rather than this being a sort of provoked assault. They spent so much time saying, there's going to be a, a false case for an invasion. They spent so much time laying the groundwork um, mm. for um, people to expect a Russian invasion that the upsurge in popular support for Ukraine um, has really meant that they've been sort of winning that the information war aspect of this conflict. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I don't, it, it just, again, as I said, people kind of overestimate the kind of realistic dimension in international politics. There can be miscalculations, there can be errors, there can be value-driven politics rather than kind of influence-driven politics. But at this at this point, it feels like even if, if Putin manages to win militarily, which we'll, we'll go back into, it, it seems like it's a complicated picture. First of all, I mean, the cost of a military victory is going to be huge. Um, the Ukraine say, we're saying this weekend that the Russians had already lost 4,000 uh, men, 27 planes, 26 helicopters, two ships, 146 tanks and 700 other uh, uh, vehicles. This is quite costly. But then let's say they, they somehow managed to cut their losses and, and, and managed to break through somewhere and maybe in the south or something and uh, threaten supply lines and threaten Kiev and, and then the frustration is, is lost and Ukrainians decide to fold. Then what next? There's the scenario in which he decides to occupy the entire country, which I don't think is feasible. I don't think he, he realistically believes that. It's if there'd be resistance coming from from every corner, it'd be just impossible. So the option would be maybe just fall back to Donbass, Lubansk, Crimea, of course, have some kind of a land bridge between Crimea and um, Lubansk and, and Donetsk. Um, that's still quite costly, but it's kind of more friendly population and put a friendly government in, in Ukraine. But if one thing has shown us throughout history, and especially in Afghanistan, is a fragile foreign-imposed regime will need foreign backup 
time and time and time when the saw ended now in Afghanistan. Um, so then you end up not really occupying, but still having to do the heavy lifting because you'll, you'll need to spend troops to defend your, your assets. And then the other issue is you're reinforcing the, the, the reason, raison d'etre of, of NATO. I mean, for many people, including for, for President Macron not too long ago, NATO was brain dead. Well, now all of a sudden we have a, Putin has provided a brain surgery to NATO. Um, the, the, the raison d'etre for NATO has become very clear again. There's a clear threat to the East. Then on top of that, we've got Russia being completely isolated. I think even China is a bit uncomfortable with the whole situation. Mm-hmm. I saw even the Taliban's condemned the, the offensive. Mm-hmm. Taliban said that they, they need to find diplomatic means between Ukraine and Russia. Um, so you've got that. And on top of that, I think, which is something I really can't, can't speculate too much, but this is personally for Putin very dangerous. He had a very set situation where he was in control of all the levers of influence. If this goes wrong... You could maybe not see a, a kind of a popular uprising. I don't think I don't think that's feasible. But you could see a palace coup very easily um, if some some officers decide that Putin has gone too far and now they're boxed in and the sanctions are becoming too hard to swallow and they'll need to send some kind of olive branch to the West. Then mm-hmm. ousting Putin might be just that. So it it just seems to me like. Uh, it's not clear how Russia could win this. There's just so many downsides. And, that, and, that's, and that's kind of the main rationale, I think, that, that underpins the current uh, strategy of sanctions against Russia is that the purpose of them is to um, uh, make uh, defections happen, is to make people from Putin's inner circle reassess uh, how much they stand yeah. to, gain from, to gain from being associated with this man and to hope that uh, a substantial number of them will say, well, you know what, if I'm no longer able to access SWIFT because of these sanctions, then I'm, I'm no longer um, uh, loyal to, to Putin. Uh, but I think, again, the, the, I just want to remind that this is the same rationale that has been used in other countries like Venezuela, for instance, which also has a crony-backed uh, kind of far-left government that is a rogue regime in, its, in, its many, in, in many ways. And, and it hasn't happened, um, you know, even though Venezuela is subject to the toughest sanctions regime of perhaps any country in the world, except for North Korea, uh, the government of, yeah. uh, of Nicolas Maduro remains in place. So I'm not entirely sure. I mean, and the, the most frustrating thing, and this kind of really takes us deep into the issue of sanctions, the most frustrating thing to me in the, in the first few days after the, inv- the, invasion, the invasion last Thursday was that countries within the EU were, were uh, reticent uh, to sanction uh, Russia economically in, in, in significant ways. I mean, Italy and Hungary, I think, were the two holdouts, the two, um, the two uh, holdouts uh, when it came to the SWIFT sanctions. And eventually they came around and everyone is now, uh, is now, has now agreed on, 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 this, on this package. But, um, but you know, I, I thought it was, and, and I think it kind of goes to show that how, how embedded Russian kleptocracy is in, in, in our own economies in the West. Not only This is not only about energy. This is not only about gas. This also has to do with the amount of Russian money in Western European capitals and also London. Mm. Um, so so I, I thought that was one of the more, one of the more um, uh, frustrating aspects of this whole crisis is that, is that in, the, the, in, the first, in the initial first days, there wasn't... Uh, there wasn't the kind of response that you would expect in, in this situation. It, it has taken a few days for the West to really get here. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the scale of it is, is, is huge, though. I mean, Julian, I think you, you probably have more to say than, than me about the, the sanctions, but a lot of it is unprecedented. Mm. Yes, the, the economic sanctions, it, it started off, at least from my perspective, and I think this goes to what you were saying, Huawei, 
as a bit of a drip and then it became a bit of a heavy pour and then it became a flood. And the flood was the sanctions on the Bank of Russia, or the Central Bank of Russia, the Russian Central Bank, um, which effectively froze a large quantity of their foreign assets. Um, It had been talked in the run-up to the war that economic sanctions might not work um, and that kicking Russia out of SWIFT might not be enough um, because they had such vast reserves accumulated over the years, I think, some of the estimates are 630 billion, some are 469 billion. It depends on how much you count and what you count. Um, but they had such a vast um, quantity of reserves that it didn't matter if you sanctioned the Russian economy because they would be able to withstand whatever economic blows you levied against them. But the sanctions on the Russian central bank and therefore them not being able to clear certain trades mean that a large number of the reserves that they hold, which are in euros or dollars or sterling, they won't be able to sell off. Um, because okay. they won't be able to find a buyer. I don't think we need to go into the technicalities of how you yeah, yeah. sell foreign exchange reserves. But in essence, they're stuck in accounts that they can't access. And again, the numbers aren't quite specific, but it could be as much as 50 to 60% of hmm. Russia's reserves will be unavailable to them. And then a large number of the reserves they have are in gold. Now, yep. gold is generally easier to sell, even if there are sanctions on Russia, because at a certain point, someone is going to want to buy it. Uh, The question is how much influence and reach does the US have to stop countries from buying that gold? I mean, China might well buy it, but at at what cost diplomatically Mm. is it really worth it to them to obtain some gold reserves um, and also anger the US? Other countries might not not care as much, but Mm. the extent of the sanctions on the central bank and the limiting of access to Russian reserves is really the game changer in terms of economic sanctions. And, you know, we've seen lines around the block at ATMs and runs on banks in Russia because their banks yeah. being frozen out from payment systems. There was an anecdote from, I think, Max Seddon of the Financial Times, who's or one of the Financial Times Moscow bureau chief, um, who was saying that his hotel had asked him to settle the bill early because they weren't sure if they were going to have access to SWIFT by the time he checked out. And so you're seeing things like that. And those are the things that could really precipitate civil unrest within Russia. Again, you know, to your point, I think it's you know unlikely we're going to see regime change. Or hey, you mentioning Venezuela, uh, Iran is another one. We didn't see it there really. Um, and Russia is a much more securitized state than I think either of those two. Um, so unlikely, but you would see you know a lot of civil unrest. And I, I want to take a step back from all of this. These sanctions have been unprecedented. There's also all the sporting sanctions. Um, uh, I think Russia is going to be expelled from the Qatar World Cup. Uh, there's a lot of kind of huge pressure. And I was talking to a South African the other day who was telling me before the apartheid probably has much to do with the uh, with South Africa being isolated from the international sporting community than with the kind of more traditional sanctions. But taking a step away from all this, um, I was reading um, extracts earlier, earlier from um, a book published in 2019 on the invasion of Iraq called The Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and the America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy, um, which builds on a lot of what the article on um, I talked about, about pausing the precipice. Talking about Iraq, he said, such an approach to arriving at judgments allow us to see the Iraq decision for what it was, a creeping feeling that a given course of action was the right one based on the simple rules or convictions that were moralistic or normative than analytical. Um, 
it feels right to sanction Russia. We feel like we have to do something. The question I'm asking is, are we underestimating the risk of larger escalation? We have been giving offensive weapons to the Ukrainians overnight. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. Um, but I, this is pretty brazen. You know, this is pretty in the open. I think there's few precedents of openly arming another side since uh, there's probably going to be a few few big examples. But, but I, I'm thinking of the United States during World War II giving weapons to the United Kingdom. Um, should, should we kind of take a moment to, to pause at all these things? And are we really, really doing this because we think it will end the invasion in Ukraine? It will maybe topple Putin? Or possibly are we doing this because we are swayed, and rightfully so, by kind of the emotional impact of all of this? Um, sh- should we? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, not exactly sure how much I want, how far I want to go with this. But are we underestimating the risk of a larger escalation? I was reading this morning Bruno Le Maire. Bruno Le Maire was, was invited on a, on a talk show. And he said, we are going to deliver a total economic and financial war against Russia. Oof. That is strong rhetoric. Russia is a, is a powerful nuclear power. It has massive cyber capacities. Are we serious about this escalation? Yeah, yeah. You talk about cyber capacities, but that's the other kind of front here. And I think it was former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton who was uh, openly calling for uh, cyber attacks to be conducted against Russia the other day in, in retaliation. But um, no, but I think the the, the really um, the really important point is that uh, the West and particularly Western Europe has all of a sudden woken up to the necessity of a strong military response to the invasion and that's that's what you're seeing there with your your um, your comment about all the the arms uh shipments towards uh, ukraine i think i think western europe understands that one there should be a a robust uh, military response and, and ukraine should hold the line and that um and that the only way to um to um to uh to create that response is through the uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian military and by by supporting uh, Zelensky's government uh, and, and 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 the Ukrainian army. So um, so I think that's that's what you're saying. We haven't even mentioned uh, Germany. Germany obviously was um, has, has been the, the major um, surprise. I mean, in, in this whole crisis with yeah. um, just an, 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 all of Schultz has, has pledged a, a major ramp up of, of defense spending. And, and, you know, in Europe, whenever we talk of, of defense spending, I think we should make clear for our audience, it's always very, very um, hazy as a concept because a lot of the times um, Western European states will, um, you know, spend on things like, diversity and inclusion training in the military as defense spending instead of actual spending mm-hmm. on military equipment and uh yeah. and operation personnel but um but so but so yeah I, th- I think what you're seeing all of a sudden this kind of leads into one of the major um conversations uh that have that have spawned uh from from this crisis is that but ho- yeah, yeah go ahead okay I, I i we will go back on this okay. but i think i think we we have to talk about this i think we have to talk a few seconds about the risk of a potential escalation. Um, Putin has managed to end Sweden and Finland's long tradition of historical neutrality pretty much overnight. We are giving military equipment to the Russians. Some of the more agitated, usually um, non-professional commentators 
in the West have called to bomb the convoy of Russian tanks and equipment heading towards Kiev. That's that's obviously not going to happen, but it, it says a lot about kind of the rhetoric that's been going on across in the West. Are we... I, I don't know. Um, and, and, and Putin has threatened to... to no, has started to... Um, um, how can I say, mobilize his nuclear um, uh, equipment? Yeah, Julian, I don't know. What, what do you think yeah. about this? So I, I'll, I'll give you... I think I'm quite well placed considering I'm in Washington to sort of talk a little bit about the US perspective on this. Um, I think it's sort of important to consider that even though you know, this is a conflict within Europe. And, you know, you see a lot of people, I think some of the more aggressive agitators for war, banding about Munich in 1938, and they're talking about Anschluss, and they're talking about the Sudetenland, and they're talking about the precedence of um, appeasement of Hitler. I think a more apt comparison from a U.S. policy perspective is domino theory from the start of, well, okay, from from the 40s and 50s in the Cold War. I won't say the start of the Cold War, depends on when you date it to. Yeah. The fear in U.S. policy circles that allowing, and we're going to go talk specifically about Vietnam, yeah. that allowing one country in Southeast Asia to succumb to a communist um, takeover would lead all the others to follow suit. Uh, there was also, it was also the fear in Europe and one of the motivating factors of the Marshall Plan. But I think that's the fear in terms of the domino theory. It's not so much that you're going to get Russian sympathizers in all these peripheral states, but that mm. failure to stand up to Putin in Ukraine leads to a failure to stand up to Putin in Finland or Sweden. Or, or even standing up to China and Taiwan, or China and Taiwan is exactly as the other as the other example. Um, so I, I think that's a large part of it. But there is, I, I do see, you know, there is a risk of escalation. Ukraine matters a lot more to Russia than it ever will to the United States. Yeah, and the risk of miscalculation is quite high. Putin has already bandied about the nuclear option, yeah. and I don't think people should take that as an idle threat. I think yeah. that is a serious option. If you look at Russian nuclear strategy for the last decade, it's been rewritten to encourage what's known as an escalatory de-escalation strike, whereby you drop, you use a tactical nuclear weapon, not necessarily a strategic nuclear weapon, a battlefield nuke, um, to essentially frighten your opponent into submission, showing your willingness to use nuclear force and daring them to do the same and betting that they won't. It's an extreme form of brinksmanship, but it's in Russian nuclear strategy doctrines. And U.S. forces are aware, U.S. strategic command is aware of this, NATO is obviously aware of this. But I think that's something that's somewhat missing from the public debate is an understanding of that. And then just the last thing I'll say on this in terms of the U.S. role, the U.S. has been very clear that any incursions into NATO airspace would be tantamount to a declaration of war by Russia. Poland obviously is right on the border of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, the Black Sea is a very is a hot spot. Earlier, mm. sorry, last year, British and Russian ships exchanged warning shots at one another mm. in the Black Sea. The chances of miscalculation, not necessarily because of Ukraine, but in the neighboring constituencies, be it the Black Sea or Polish airspace or Estonian airspace, wherever, are quite high. And that's really where that risk of all of NATO being dragged into war with all of Russia comes in. It's those areas, not so much the supplying of offensive weaponry to Ukraine, which the United States does in general in any conflict when it doesn't like one side. I mean, think about Afghanistan, 1979. Um, 
supplying the Mujahideen with offensive weaponry. It's a very it's a, it's a classic American thing to do. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, Armenia and, and Ukraine, because I think there's a, there's a kind of a similar thread going on here, which is both of these countries were working, l- looking towards the West. And the West kind of entertained mm. detaching those countries outside of a Russian sphere of influence. Not seriously. Like I'm not not uh, I'm not going to believe anything. Like you know, Ukraine would be joining NATO in the next few years. That's Russian propaganda. Rest of it. But we've been entertaining it. We haven't been saying no to it. The issue is, Putin is obviously the first responsible for 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 this invasion. There's no, no no one is more responsible than he is. But I think if Putin is responsible, we have been irresponsible. To a lot of extent, entertaining the possibility of integrating Ukraine in a kind of larger Western sphere without actually being serious about backing it up. Yeah. Now we, we have to because we, we are shocked and we're, not, we're kind of surprised by the extent of the Russian attack. But we should have been more honest about it. If we were, if we, we were serious about integrating Ukraine and Armenia into the Russian sphere of influence, sorry, in the European Western sphere of influence, we should have backed it up seriously. Um, otherwise, it would just be completely responsible with, with a country. And I think the lesson Armenia took from all of this is when Azerbaijan came in water over them, they realized for West, it was all crickets. The, all the kind of uh, dancing and flirting with West, when when things got got tough, there was no one to back them. Um, now, the extent, I think, for the sanctions were kind of mitigate that, that fear from among other countries. But, you know, Armenia flirting with the West gets punished, nobody helps. Ukraine flirts with the West, gets punished, and people help, but probably too late. This might be kind of a, a larger lesson um, that might be drawn, that the West is talking big game about about liberal values and, and democracy, but it can't, it, can't, it, can't, it can't put its money where its mouth is. Yeah. Um, it can't protect your, your security like, like Russia would, for example. But again, I think, I think the... Um, so there, 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 there certainly is a, um, an argument there that you know, um, when you know, through the through the '90s and the 2000s, when uh, the West was essentially uh, making these uh, warrants or these, um, or uh, essentially uh, leaving the door open for for Ukraine and other uh, Eastern European countries to join NATO, it wasn't expecting. It just did not. We did not think that Russia could ever become such a revisionist rogue power. We trusted that uh, economic interdependence between. Russia and the rest of Europe was going to um, was was going to create um, um, was was going to to help help us avert war and um, and so I think I, whilst I understand what you're saying, uh, Francois, that we weren't uh, able to to fully uh, commit to this possibility. I mean, the the, the the we're now able to commit to um, Ukraine's NATO session now that it's been. Uh, you know, uh, invaded, but um, but I think we we never really quite saw the trajectory of this uh, new um, of Putin's Russia, this sort of very uh, revanchist, re- revisionist uh, power. We we just we we had totally um, overestimated. I mean, I, I was reading a piece on National Review this morning by uh, I think Michael Brandon Doherty, who says that the 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 single fact of geopolitics that has been most disproved by this crisis is the idea that trade leads to peace. That has been totally dispelled um, because you are seeing Russia uh, invade a country and, and essentially uh, anathemize the entire West, which, you know, it depends on it and the West depends on Russia. So, the, the whole, I mean, I, I, but I understand your point. I understand your point that um, 
that we weren't. I, yeah. Yeah. No. Um. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the West is responsible for this. I think. I think we were not serious. Yeah. We were dabbling about it and kind of flirting without thinking about the consequences. Um. But I think this this might change everything. Though. This might be the moment where, especially the EU, takes its head out of the sand and stops being delusional about praising itself of being a vegetarian in a world of carnivores, thinking the future will only be vegetarians and carnivores are antiquated uh, beasts that will progressively disappear from the sphere of the earth. Pacifism is not a guarantee of peace. Pacifism is not committing to defend, to defend yourself or your interests around you, but it does not mean you're guaranteeing peace. Um, again, you know, we're going to use all the II analogies, but France was pacifist in the 1930s. They did not stop a war down the road. The question I have is, we saw the Germans have committed 100 billion to a you know, special assets for, 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 for defense. They want to increase their defense spending massively. I think that they will reach their 2% spending after years of, of being well under that. Um, it's been a long time since we've been saying the return of history. Uh, you know, Europeans have to understand now that we're living in a different world. I think Trump, you know, kind of moved the conversation a little bit by being not so friendly to Europeans. Um, Afghanistan was a bit of a wake-up call about America wasn't all-powerful. Um, I don't know. What, do, you, do you feel that this is the transformative moment that the EU needed about its foreign policy? I think in many ways, yes, because I think a, a long-standing complaint in British circles, except for the ones with financial connections to Moscow, has been that Europe hasn't really accepted the fact that Russia is a bad actor and a menacing threat. And you see this in British and American attitudes towards Nord Stream 2. You hear it in conversations when people talk about Germany's Ostpolitik. Um, when Merkel left office, a lot of sort of US foreign policy people were secretly gleeful because they felt that they would get someone who was tougher on Russia. And then Olaf Scholz came along and their hopes were not quite lived up to. But yeah. I think I think it very much is a transformative moment for for Europe in that you know the EU prides itself in many ways as being something that brings peace to the continent after a century of bloody war. But if you look at the periphery and the surrounding areas, it's nothing but conflict. And now that conflict is right on the border yep. in a war that Europe hasn't seen in a long time. Yep. And that compels you to rethink your strategy. It compels you to rethink the way you approach the world and your neighbors. And the EU has been very lax in terms of its protocols of accession, thinking about the Balkans right now. Uh, North Macedonia agreeing to change its name in order to get access to the European Union, and then suddenly it's blocked. Bosnia is currently facing a lot of strife. That could break out into conflict. EU membership would be critical to some of these countries, but membership and expansion has very much stalled. And maybe this is what the EU needs to repurpose and rediscover its uh, project of, of bringing peace to the region through closer integration and uh, absorption to some of the systems that the EU has to offer. Yeah, the question I have though, is what, what shape is this kind of... Because I think... The consensus is there is going to be a before and after this, and we will realize, Europeans will realize they can't take defense lightly. 
that the dividends of peace are well over. The question is, what shape will this take? Um, will this take a kind of European effort to build itself as a strong, independent, autonomous, strategic actor among the lines, along the lines of what we saw, you know, uh, in, in Macron's speeches? Or will this, will this, on the contrary, be a much more kind of NATO-focused? We need to we need to make sure America stays within Europe because the moment America leaves Europe, we cannot stand up for our own defense. Um, these obviously are completely contradictory options, but to some extent, it is a strategic vision of what the EU wants to be. Um, I was actually quite struck to see many countries over the past few days saying, um, you know, countries you wouldn't expect to, to support Macron's ideas, but like Hungary, for example, saying uh, there is some truth in the concept of strategic autonomy we need to kind of look into. Um, I, it, it's, it's not clear what lessons Europeans are going to draw. First of all, I think a lot of countries will feel pretty vindicated. For a long time, Poland uh, and other Eastern European countries were you know, banging their drums against, uh, about, about Russia, being really hardline against Russia. And to be fair, most people, including myself, thought they were a bit hawkish and gung-ho about this and you know, kind of stuck in, in fighting all the historical battles. Now I think they're, pre- they're very much vindicated. But the Poles, for example, are, have always been strong partisans of a uh, strong involvement of NATO in, 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 in Europe. They've never been a fan of, of uh, the idea of strategic autonomy because they don't believe the French and, and you know, other proponents of this idea have the hardware to back up this, this grand rhetoric. Yeah. Um, well, and, and essentially, they don't believe that um, Europe can replace America, uh, because I, I think my, my only issue with your question, uh, Francois, is that I would ideally like to see both outcomes. I would like to ideally see NATO uh, ramp up its um, capabilities by having each all of its um, underspending states, uh, you know, jack up their defense spending up to two percent. But I would also like to see America uh, remain involved uh, very much so through NATO in Europe. I, I don't see the two as necessarily incompatible. I mean, I, I, I totally get your point that the kinds of governments that support one or the other are different. So it, this, this looks like a, dip, like a bifurcation. But, um, but, I, but, but the, the reason why um, a country like Poland... Uh, opposes or, or has opposed this this notion of strategic autonomy as it's been described by President Macron is that it is because it fundamentally doesn't believe that Germany and France can uh, step up their capabilities to the point of replacing America. Um, whereas in reality, I think what you would have is you would have a combination of the two strategies. You would you you wouldn't need to replace America. You would have all of America's military weight with all of Europe's military weight. This is my my way of of, of solving for this problem. And that, that's something a lot, we, we, we had this conversation many times, and that's something that uh, Benjamin Haddad, for example, made the case a few times on the podcast, which is for America to stay in Europe, Europe needs to show it's serious about its own defense. Mm. Um, I think we might we might see some of this now. Um, now the other temptation is if if Europe gets serious about its own defense, the temptation for America is actually to consider well, it can it can invest its assets on other fronts, mainly on its kind of uh, head, uh, super hegemonic fight with um, with China of a kind of world influence. Um, 
but yeah, since I don't know, I have, I, mean, I don't have the answer. I don't think it will be Evo or an Evo solutions. It's probably going to be a bit, bit in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but I actually might think if we kind of talk about a kind of European defense. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if it actually boosts the case for strategic autonomy or if it weakens it. Essentially, mm, yeah. Julian. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been, and perhaps this is part of my Anglo-American heritage, but I've always been in the more hawkish camp in support of uh, Polish objections to yeah. Europe's softness on Russia. And sort of looking at the two percent chart right now, I'm just going to list off a few names: Greece, the United States, Croatia, the United Kingdom, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, France. Those are the countries that in 2021 spent more than 2% of their GDP on yeah. defense. And you can you notice right there in the middle, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, yeah, 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 yeah. all ones that face the menace of Russian threat. And I think... June, before you go on, just yeah. one quirk. The main reason France made it to 2% is because the GDP dropped so massively. <laughs> we made it to 2%, but yeah. Hey, account, accountants are very creative. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's... Looking at that, I think it's more likely to be a NATO mission. NATO is getting a new Secretary General later this year. Jen Stoltenberg is stepping down in October or November to go run one of the run a central bank. Uh, I think NATO is more likely to be the voice of that because it's simply larger. It has members in the Balkans and its proximity to conflict and willingness to wade into those conflicts means that it might be the better or the more likely forum um, for a sort of reimagining of not only what NATO does, but also what Europe stands for in a most multipolar and more dangerous world. Um, I think the pushes to strategic autonomy, given the way the EU functions, it's going to be slower and more deliberate, whereas with, at least with NATO, you know, you can increase your spending. U.S. defense contractors are always looking for a new contractor supply weaponry to uh, and the amount of investments that the US has made and the size of the investments that the US has made in next level defense te technology um, they'd be willing to share those with NATO partners especially those on the periphery of potential conflicts with Russia so and I think to your point Jorge of the US doing both the strategy in the Cold War was this notion of fighting a two-front war successfully one in Asia and one in Europe and in some ways the US was a victim of its own success and that it spent so significantly and so successfully that it decided it no longer needed to do this. And now they're trying to sort of get back to that. Or some people want them to go back to that. Some people don't want them to just focus on Asia. But I think the reality is that you'll see the US, not in terms of troop numbers, but in terms of the way it deploys its assets strategically across the globe, a strong naval presence in Asia, but maybe more of the ground forces in in Europe, because as the saying goes, you don't want to fight a land war in Asia. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the... the, um, the sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's one of the more interesting developments, I feel like, from this whole um, crisis is to see, you know, someone like, um, I believe his name is El, Elbridge Colby. Um, uh, he's, he's a former Pentagon official who has been you know, beating a steady drum on, on Twitter about the need to uh, once and for all, as, as an American, he's advising American uh, uh, defense planners, policymakers, so he's speaking to an American audience, and he, he, um, he's been making the point that, we, that, that America needs to once and for all pivot away towards, uh, pivot towards Asia, because China's uh, strategy in that region is becoming so aggressively concerning that, that, um, that this is all diversion. And, and 
and the, the the this was the the the, the kind of the hook in a in an in an op-ed that the that the New York Times uh, published on um, on I believe Friday, so the day after the invasion, where they said the ability to do what three consecutive presidents have pledged to do, namely to pivot to disentangle America away from Europe and towards Asia, has been severely undercut once again. I mean, this is really the, the tragedy of this whole crisis to America is that it's once once again being held back from doing what a bipartisan consensus in America believes is necessary, which is to focus on China. So that's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, being the global hedgeman is very difficult. Everything pulls you in another direction. I mean, at first it was Obama, you know, was trying to pivot to Asia and then being dragged back into the Middle East because of ISIS. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, you're always being pulled in different directions. Yeah, um, I think more generally, if we are going to sidestep the conversation of NATO versus strategic autonomy, um, I think more generally, if the EU is serious about being a strategic actor, whether it's you know more autonomously or more closer in coordination with NATO, it's not just simply going to be a question of strategic matters proper. It's also going to be a question of, of economics and especially energy. And I think this is where this ties well with our conversation we've had um, two months ago on, on energy. German, Germany and Italy and many countries' reliance on Russian gas has made this conversation so complicated. Um one of the reasons Germany, especially in the early phases, wanted to attenuate sanctions at first was because if if they have no way of accessing any Russian gas, then they risk having blackouts this winter. Um, and that's not something you can you can laugh off. You know, people say you know we need to to show solidarity with with Ukraine. And we, and of course, we need to. Are people willing to see energy prices skyrocket? Uh, willing to see uh, blackouts uh, or face blackouts at some point? I, I don't. I don't think so. And this is this is also where the decision of Angela Merkel, or decision of Gerald Schroeder to exit nuclear, uh, accelerated by Angela Merkel after Fukushima, just seems incredibly short-sighted. Not only on the kind of a environmental front, because you know nuclear is, is very green energy; it has its flaws, but it's, it's very green. Um, not only on that front is is it is it awkward, but also on the kind of strategic front, our reliance on Germany's reliance on Russia's on Russian gas has made the conversation about autonomy so goddamn difficult in Europe. Um, and I think it's not it's not just simply saying, you know, we, we are going to spend, you know, because you can spend $100 billion on defense. First of all, there's not a guarantee you're going to have a good army anytime soon. There's a question of tradition, of experience, of building it up. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not because you, you spend 2% that you've got a decent army. It's much more complicated than that. And, you know, I think British and French defense spending are, are comparable, but for French armies in a much better set than the, than the British army operationally because it's been fighting a lot of war and has a lot of experience in Africa especially. Um we need to have kind of a change in mindset, which is not simply strategic military matter, but kind of economics, um, being less naive about, you know, uh, in, when we talk about kind of matters of globalization. And it's 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 a l more profound mindset than just thinking simply, oh, war is our doorstep, so we need to rearm ourselves. Yeah, and, and, and that's a crucial point, Francois, that really gets missed in the, um, the conversation on defense, especially in Europe, 
which is that which I, I believe America has a better kind of framing of this this question. Um, you know, when we talk of when, as you said, when we talk about defense, we shouldn't be exclusively focused on top line levels of spending, right? How what what share of the what share of national GDP is spent every year on defense? We shouldn't even be focused on what gross amount uh, is spent on defense. We should be we should we should have a much more outcomes oriented defense policy where how much money is spent on defense is uh, ultimately assessed on the the strength of those investments and what difference they make to your military. I mean, it, as you said, it does no good to spend two percent of GDP if that two percent is spent on you know, things that are hardly, that are, you know, they're not connected to operationally bringing an, uh, you know, uh, bringing an army to, to front. I mean, you, you need to focus on, so that, that's, that's why I think increasingly in America, there's, there's been a conversation about not just defense spending, but smart defense spending. You know, it should be, however much money we, we spend every year, it should be spent in a way that, that considerably, um, that considerably improves upon the capabilities that exist. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's another thing in the NATO beyond the 2%, another thing they stress is how much of it is on R&D and mm. making sure that you're not just, you know, buying equipment en masse, but buying new equipment and researching ways to upgrade that existing equipment. We've heard some of the somewhat jokey horror stories of German soldiers having to use brooms in military exercises because they didn't have enough rifles. But it's not enough to just simply buy however many thousands of rifles you need. You actually need to be doing the research and spending into next level defense technology and 21st defense, 21st century defense technology. And I think that needs to be a larger push because a lot of countries can't afford to do the 2% defense spending. But as long as there is a way for them to be investing in new technology, Estonia, for instance, although it does spend 2%, is a strong digital economy in its own right and could be doing a lot of research in cyber. And I think those are the sort of things that we should be seeing European countries investing in. Even if they can't do the 2%, there are ways for them to meet their defense targets and contribute to NATO security. Yeah, I think this is roughly um, a good place to wrap this up. Let, let's, let's wrap this up then. Um, obviously, this is an ongoing conversation. We are, I think, um, a bit shell-shocked by what's going on and obviously uh, a lot of solidarity with the people of Ukraine who are currently being um, bombed and have to move out plenty of, I think, already hundreds of thousands of, of refugees across Europe. Um, and it's important to remind that Ukraine neighbours Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, all EU countries. Um, we're obviously going to have this conversation on and on in the past few weeks. Um, we're going to be talking about NATO. We're going to be talking about uh, what it means for um, the French election, for example. Um, could this be a Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan moment for the 2024 election? There's plenty for in the United States. There's plenty of different um, aspects of which we will. I think the energy question we will want to explore further as well. There's plenty of different threads here we will try to to um, think a bit more on. But I, I hope I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Um, it's a bit of a different one. I think we we were a lot less structured than than we usually are, but I think there's just so much going on. And um, again, I think we're all a bit shell-shocked in trying to piece things um, together. But anyways, if you want to support the show, don't forget, uh, you can like the show, you can subscribe, you can share the show for, for, to friends. And if you're feeling generous, you can support the show through Patreon uh, for as much as uh, $5 a month. 
um, it would really help to you know make sure we we keep up putting episodes like this, but also kind of more um, in depth episodes. Invest in 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 digital equipment and physical equipment, all these things that make sure uh, the lights are still on every day when we do this show. Um, thanks a lot, Julian. And um, thanks a lot, Jorge. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot to all our listeners. And I say to all of you, see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>